The following program is part two of a PDX Media Productions From the Archives lecture. The date is March 15, 1989. The title of the lecture is The United States, Israel, and the Palestinians. Our speaker is Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics and philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Part one of this lecture is available as streaming video through our website at www.pdxjustice.org. We look back at this lecture, delivered over 15 years ago, for insights into where we find ourselves today. Of particular interest are Professor Chomsky's discussion of Zionism, the so-called pro-Israel lobby, and the strategic asset theory of U.S. support for Israel's continuing occupation and settlement of Palestinian land in the West Bank and Gaza. The entire lecture will be broadcast in three one-hour programs. The first program, Part 1, included most of the lecture. This second program, part two, concludes the lecture and covers part of the question and answer session of Professor Chomsky's presentation. The final program, part three, will conclude the question and answer session and then turn to commentary by members of the Jewish and Palestinian communities involved in the struggle for peace and for justice in this troubled land. And now, part two of Professor Noam Chomsky's presentation the United States, Israel, and the Palestinians. A lecture from the archives, March 15, 1989. This lecture was delivered at the Wisconsin Union Theater on the Madison campus of the University of Wisconsin. After the Shah fell, Israel's role as a strategic asset became more important because it was the last gendarme. And in fact, U.S. aid to Israel shot up at that time, 79, 1980, around then, from 79 to 1982, U.S. aid to Israel, even official aid, you look at the whole story, it's more, but the official aid reached about 50% of total U.S. aid in the world. That's a lot for a small country. Uh, and it reflects the significance of uh, maintaining U.S. dominance over that strategically critical region. Well, that's the logic of the U.S. opposition to a political settlement over many years. Uh, and uh, uh, I think it's the logic of the current rejection of, uh, of a political settlement, which the U.S. is uh, still engaged in. Now, why has the, U the last comment, why has the U.S. modified its position? 
with regard to dealing with the Palestinians, even though the Palestinians haven't changed their position at all? Well, that's an interesting question, and we can get some insight into it by looking at earlier events. So let's go back to the relations with Sadat of Egypt. Uh, everyone who reads the American press or you know, journals or books and so on knows that, that Sadat is the one good Arab. All Arabs are bad, but Sadat is the one good one, which is why he was killed, because the Arabs always kill the good guy. Uh, now, why was Sadat the good Arab? Well, the official story is that uh, although Sadat was originally a bad Arab, like all the rest, that is, all he wanted to do was kill Jews, and like all Arabs do, uh, in uh, 1973, he tried, in the October War, he tried to kill all the Jews, and it didn't work. And then, after that, under the kindly tutelage of Henry Kissinger and Jimmy Carter, uh, he became a man of peace, uh, and he flew to Jerusalem in 1977, and he offered peace. Uh, and then, of course, in our magnanimity, we accepted peace, uh, and then came the Camp David agreements, and Sadat was a man of peace. That's the official story. The actual truth is a little bit different. Uh, the actual truth is that Sadat made a peace offer in February 1971, which was more favorable to Israel than the one that he made in Jerusalem in 1977. Rather interesting point. In his February 1971 proposal, which Israel and the United States rejected, he offered nothing to the Palestinians, zero. That's supposed to be what Israel wants. Uh, in 1977, when he came to Jerusalem, he, uh, he insisted on a Palestinian state. Now, the reason for that is that the international consensus had changed. From about 67 up till mid-1970s, this general international consensus was rejectionist. It offered nothing to the Palestinians. It called for a settlement on the internationally recognized borders along the lines of UN 242, as understood throughout the world, and along the lines of the Rogers Plan and Sadat's proposal. Nothing for the Palestinians, right? Just a return to the status quo. Jordan takes the West Bank, Egypt takes the Gaza Strip, and that's it. It's supposed to be what Israel and the United States want. Well, Israel and the United States rejected it. By the mid-70s, the terms of that consensus had shifted for all sorts of re reasons indigenous to the area. It had shifted to include a Palestinian state, that is, a right of Palestinian self-determination. At that point, the Palestinians joined the consensus. Obviously, they didn't before, transparently. They had never agreed to their own uh, lack of a right of self-determination. Uh, but when that became part of this broad international consensus, they joined as well, as did the major Arab states, and then you get things like the proposal of 1976 and Sadat's proposal in Jerusalem in 1977, which reflected the current international consensus. The United States still opposed, of course, uh, namely a Palestinian state and recognition of the right of all states to live in peace and security and so on. Now, why did the United... Now, notice that Sadat's 77 proposal is allowed to enter history. Makes him a man of peace, in fact. But his more forthcoming 1971 proposal is not allowed to enter history. Why is that? Well, uh, the reason is quite intelligible when you go back to the meaning of the word peace process. Recall that the peace process is whatever the United States is pursuing. Now, in 1971, the United States was opposed to Sadat's offer. Therefore, it's not part of the peace process. But in 1977, the United States was willing to adapt in its own terms to Sadat's offer. Therefore, it's part of the peace process. Uh, the United States didn't pursue the actual offer, but it was willing to deal with it. What happened in between? Well, what happened in between is, that, is the following. After Sadat, the rejection of Sadat's 1971 offer, uh, the Egypt and also Syria made it extremely clear 
that if the United States and Israel blocked all diplomatic uh, efforts at settlement, Egypt was going to have to go to war. Israel dismissed it. The United States dismissed it. It was assumed at that time that Egypt was a basket case, uh, that the Arabs didn't know which end of the gun to hold. Uh, as the chief of Israeli intelligence, military intelligence put it, now a noted dove, uh, Yehoshaphat Harkabi, war is not the Arabs' game. They just don't know how to play that game. So we don't have to worry about them. So therefore, they were dismissed. Uh, again, one of the usual standard intelligence catastrophes. Uh, intelligence catastrophes are standard throughout modern history, and this was one of them. Uh, they understand virtually nothing except sort of technical details about you know the size of guns and things like that. Uh, but uh, 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 this was one of them. Both Israeli and U.S. intelligence simply regarded said you know war is not the Arab game. We don't have to worry about what they're up to. So therefore, we can reject these proposals, and the United States rejected them. Uh, Kissinger was getting messages from the oil companies, from U.S. ambassadors in the region, from the Arab states, from every source, saying that if he continued with the policy of stalemate, continued to block Egyptian initiatives, Sadat was going to have to go to war. In 1973, uh, Israel, the labor government, Golda Meir's labor government, uh, announced a plan to settle the Northeast Sinai after they had driven out 10,000, probably 10,000 Arab farmers. Uh, driven them into the desert. They were installing Jewish settlements. They were building a city, uh, and uh, the city of Yamit. And uh, Sadat announced straight out, if that goes on, he's going to have to go to war. Well, nobody believed him. Nobody paid any attention. War is not the Arabs' game, and so on. Uh, anyhow, the war came in October 1973, and to the great surprise of uh, Israeli and uh, American intelligence, uh, war was the Arabs' game. In fact, they won a rather stupendous military success in the early stages of the war, still pretty spectacular, uh, and they achieved their main goal. Uh, they forced the United States to recognize that they had to deal with them. Now, there is one thing that Kissinger understood, and that's violence. He's capable of understanding that. Other things, not much. Uh, but uh, violence obviously wasn't, you know, violence succeeded. I mean, the the, the, Israel was in great danger, in fact. It was a real serious danger initially. Uh, and uh, that made its point. After that, the United States recognized that you can't dismiss Egypt. They're not a basket case. So there has to be a fallback position. Well, the obvious fallback position is, since you can't dismiss them, exclude them from the conflict. Exclude the major Arab state, the major Arab deterrent from the conflict. And that was the position to which the United States moved. Now, and, and how do you do that? Well, you do it by separating Israel and Egypt in the Sinai. So Kissinger began what's called his shuttle diplomacy, and it all ended up with the Camp David agreements, which essentially excluded Egypt from the, from the conflict, eliminating the major Arab deterrent, which allowed Israel with, as I mentioned, increasing American support, vastly increasing American support, it allowed Israel to it made them free to continue to integrate the occupied territories and to attack their northern neighbor, because there was no Arab deterrent anymore, which is exactly what happened beginning in 1978. Perfectly predictable. Uh, in retrospect, it's even conceded by strategic analysts. But it's clear that that's what was going to happen. It was clear then it's exactly what happened. And again, it's a sort of a, has a logic, you know, a rational policy. You can't dismiss Egypt as a basket case, so remove them from the conflict. That's Camp David. Now, in that context, you could accept Sadat as a peacemaker. And therefore, he was hailed as a man of peace when he came, when he offered a proposal to Egypt that was less forthcoming than the one that had been rejected in February 71. That's how policy adjusts. 
policymakers, you may not like it, but the fact is that top policymakers typically understand only one thing, the success of violence. If it works, everything's fine. If it doesn't work, you've got to adjust. That's the reality you have to adjust to. Uh, well, that was one adjustment. The next major adjustment in U.S. policy came after the Lebanese War in 1982. Uh, Israel attacked Lebanon in 1982. The purpose, as was again clear at the time and is now conceded in retrospect, the purpose was to block uh, PLO peaceful initiatives. Israel was deeply concerned over the fact that the PLO was increasingly and openly com coming forth with political proposals. And that had to be stopped. And the way to stop them is to destroy the social base of the PLO in Lebanon uh, to try to turn them back to terror. If they're back doing terrorist operations, that's fine, because that you can take care of. Uh, but it's the political, it's the diplomatic initiatives that are a concern, because that might lead to a political settlement that the United States and Israel are opposed to. Uh, in fact, the same Yehoshaphat Harkabi, who I quoted before, a former head of Israeli military intelligence, points out correctly, of course, that these war in Lebanon should not be called uh, the war for peace for Galilee. It should be called uh, the war to preserve Israel's control over the occupied territories by blocking uh, PLO initiatives. Uh, and that, uh, the United States backed that. The United States backed the war against Lebanon all the way through the savage bombing of Beirut. All the way through, it got complete U.S. backing, both from the government and even more backing from the Democratic opposition, who were even more enthusiastic. Uh, and even more backing from the left, I should say. Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda were standing on the hills above Beirut, uh, urging the Israeli artillery on to kill more people and so on. Uh, the, uh, so there was a very broad support for it in the United States all the way through. Uh, however, it didn't work. Israel failed militarily, and they know it. They, they were able to you know, kill a lot of Palestinians and Lebanese. But they did not succeed against Syrian forces, and they know it very well. There are internal reassessments in the Israeli army. Uh, they were unable to drive the Syrians out of fixed military positions. They won the technological war, but not the war on the ground. They, were, they didn't, weren't able to break the Damascus-Beirut highway until the very end of the war, after months, which was a big defeat for them. Uh, and there was a reassessment. They did not achieve the goals of establishing what Defense Minister Sharon called a new order in Lebanon a Christian-run state, a state run by Israeli mercenaries, which would extend Israeli dominance over Lebanon. They couldn't do that. They could not maintain control over the Lutani River, the river in the south, which they surely wanted, and they had to withdraw partially. They were then driven out of Lebanon by Shiite resistance, which is a very important fact and very surprising to them. They did not expect that domestic resistance could become so costly to the Israeli occupiers that they'd have to withdraw, but it happened. Uh, and in fact, they had to withdraw from all of Lebanon except this southern security zone. Now, that was a big defeat, and it was recognized as such. And in the light of that, those military realities, the United States and Israel reassessed their position. Now, they still assumed that the Palestinians in the occupied territories could be controlled by force. The Egyptians were out of control. The Lebanese Shiites were out of control. But the Palestinians in the occupied territories, those you can control by force. Israeli intelligence was certain of that. Uh, well, it was working more or less. There was plenty of violence, plenty of repression, you know, collective punishment, all this stuff. It all went by with nobody paying any attention to it because it was controlled. But starting in December 1987, when the Intifada, the uprising, began, and in the 15 months since, 
it has become clear that the Palestinians in the occupied territories can't be easily controlled either. And again, people in power who understand violence and its success recognize that violence isn't working there either, and they're beginning to reassess their policies. So the proposals of the PLO for years for a political settlement, which have disappeared from history, you can now listen to. Beginning in late 1988, it became possible for the New York Times to admit the fact that the PLO was proposing a political settlement, as they'd been doing for the past 13 years. Uh, but then you didn't have to admit it any more than you had to recognize Sadat's offer at the time when you thought that violence was working. In short, when violence is losing its efficacy, planners and the media and ideologues have to reassess their policy. Now, how did they reassess it? Now we come to the current period and the magic words. We're now up to late 1988. Uh, in, in November 1988, the Palestine National Council had a meeting in Algiers in which they declared an independent Palestinian state, which was new. And beyond that, they reiterated the familiar PLO positions, uh, a two-state settlement with recognition of the right of all states in the region to uh, secure and recognize borders to UN 242 and so on. The United States rejected that. The United States government rejected it. Therefore, the media 100% and the American intellectual community 100% rejected it as inadequate. Uh, uh, Arafat then repeated the same statements in Stockholm uh, with a meeting with uh, uh, Jewish leaders. The United States government rejected it, therefore the media rejected it, including the media doves, uh, and the intellectual community rejected it. They're following their marching orders. The government rejects it, we reject it. That's the algorithm. Uh, in, uh, the, uh, uh, Arafat was then going to come to uh, uh, New York to the UN General Assembly to deliver the same message. Uh, Washington blocked it. Uh, that was supported in the United States, overwhelmingly. There were here there were a few criticisms, but overwhelmingly supported, including by the Doves. Can't allow that. Uh, Arafat was excluded on the grounds that uh, he's he's a terrorist, and we don't admit terrorists. It's too dangerous. I, the idea apparently was he was going to hijack a taxi cab in New York, or you know maybe take over the Pentagon or something like that. Uh, we allow all sorts of you know we allow Yitzhak Shamir, but not Arafat. Well, okay, the United States at this point was being, the reaction in the world was like your reaction a minute ago. The United States was becoming an object of international ridicule. You didn't know that if you read the American press, but take a look at the European press. It was really becoming an object of international ridicule at that point. Uh, the United States was demanding not only that Arafat take the positions that virtually the entire world thought were quite legitimate and adequate and he'd been taken for years, but that he repeat the words written for him by the State Department. Uh, and the refusal of the United States to uh, allow him to come to Geneva, which was of course illegal, to, to New York, which was flat illegal, was denounced over the world, including U.S. NATO allies. Well, they held the UN session in Geneva. Uh, Arafat made a statement uh, which repeated the familiar statements. Washington rejected it. The media rejected it. The New York Times on December 14th, referring to the December 13th statement, had a big editorial saying, no, the old Arafat hedge doesn't mean anything. The United States is right to reject it. At that point, the United States was really becoming diplomatically isolated and an object of ridicule, as I stated. Arafat then had a press conference in which he repeated exactly the same positions, and then George Shultz came out on television and said, okay, he's accepted our terms. We can now have negotiations with him, uh, at which point the whole press immediately switched 
because they're following their marching orders. And we now talk about this tremendous diplomatic victory. We forced Arafat to capitulate. Uh, in fact, his positions were exactly as different from the US positions as before. And now let's take a look at that, the last point, because it's critical. Uh, the US positions were quite explicit. There were three conditions. Condition one is that Arafat must accept UN 242 without qualifications. Now, what were the qualifications? The qualifications were that he had always coupled his acceptance of UN 242 with the insistence that these terms be extended to Palestinian rights. 242 talks about the rights of states. It says nothing about the Palestinians. And the PLO position had been, yes, UN 242 is fine, but we have to add to it the right of Palestinian self-determination. Then we accept it. That was the qualification that the United States doesn't accept. Why? Because the United States does not accept the right of Palestinian self-determination. We do not regard Palestinians as human beings. They do not have the rights that we accord to Jews. Jews have a right of self-determination in the former Palestine, but the indigenous population doesn't. That's the US position. And therefore, uh, he's not allowed. Uh, uh, I hope that clapping means what I hope it does. But uh, the, um, the uh, it's, very, it's rather ambiguous, you'll notice. Uh, the, in any event, the, the position of the United States has been strictly racist. Uh, Palestinians do not have rights that we grant to Jews. Okay? And, and, and the Palestinians have always added that natural qualification that they should have the same rights. Uh, well, in, in his press conference, Arafat repeated the same qualification. He did not abandon the right of national self-determination. You take a look at his statement. He said, we accept the right of all states to exist in peace and security. Uh, including a new Palestinian state in the West Bank and the, Ara and the Gaza Strip. Exactly the position he'd always taken, exactly as different from the American position as it had ever been. The United States claimed that he'd capitulated. That means we have now imposed upon him our interpretation. According to the US interpretation, which the media 100%, to my knowledge, accept, Arafat has accepted our terms. He has abandoned the right of self-determination. And now we can demand that he keep to that, because we've imposed that illusion as reality. And since we make up the world, because we're powerful, that's the reality, whatever the facts may be. Uh, and if he simply lives up to the actual reality, he can be punished. Okay? That's, that's the technique, standard diplomatic technique that you can carry out if you're a superpower. That's point one. The second point, which the United States insisted on as the basic one, is that Arafat accept Israel's right to exist without qualification. That was point two. Now, the Palestinians have always refused to do that, and they still refuse to do it. Uh, and there's something at stake here. The concept right to exist does not exist in international affairs. No state is accorded a right to exist, an abstract right to exist. Uh, the legitimacy of any particular state is not accepted in international law. We do not accept the right of the Soviet Union to exist in its actual boundaries. We celebrate Captive Nations Week every year uh, to express that fact. Uh, Mexico probably doesn't accept the right to exist of the United States sitting on half of Mexico. At least they shouldn't. Uh, they, the states accept one another. They, they, accept, they accept the fact of the existence, but not the right of existence. Now, the right of existence was introduced by Henry Kissinger in 1975 as a technique for barring the threat of diplomacy. Uh, the, the thought was that the Palestinians will never accept Israel's abstract right to exist. That is, they may recognize Israel, but they're not going to accept the legitimacy of everything that happened to them. 
they're not going to say everything that ever happened to us was fine because Israel had a right to do it. They won't accept the legitimacy of their dispossession. They'll only accept the fact of it. And for that reason, the right to exist story was invented. Uh, well, it is now claimed that Arafat accepted Israel's right to exist. He didn't. He accepted Israel's right to exist in peace and security, UN 242, and that's a totally different thing. We do not accept Soviet Union's right to exist. We do accept their right to exist in peace and security. That is not to be subject to terrorism and aggression, at least in theory we do. Uh, now, that's, that's a critical difference, and that difference remained as it had always been. Now, what's point three? That's in many ways the most interesting of all. Uh, point three was the State Department condition was that Arafat reject terrorism without qualification. Okay? Now, in all the statements, PNC, the Palestinian National Council uh, meeting in November, Arafat's subsequent statements, Geneva, he had always added a qualification. Uh, uh, that quali and, and therefore, the, the, you know, the American media described it as the old Arafat hedge. He's ambiguous. Uh, the doves, like Anthony Lewis, uh, said, well, you know, he's making progress, but he still has more to go because he's always adding that qualification and so on. Uh, what was the qualification? Well, that's interesting. Here you see the utility of suppressing unwelcome facts. Uh, the qualification is this. There are the Palestinians, including the PLO, the PLO and the Palestinian National Council and the, had always, for years, had accepted UN declarations on terrorism. And they did so again in Algiers. They endorsed the UN recommendation resolutions on terrorism. And in fact, they essentially repeated their wording. Now, the, U the UN resolutions on terrorism are supported by an overwhelming majority of the world. In fact, the last vote, which was uh, uh, December 1987, uh, was 153 to 2, with Honduras alone abstaining. So, and that means all the NATO powers voting for it. In fact, everybody voting for it except two, the United States and Israel. Uh, what is the reason for the United States and Israel opposing the UN resolutions on terrorism? Well, you read the resolution, you quickly understand it. The resolution condemns terrorism in all its forms and says all states have to work to eradicate this plague and so on and so forth. But then it adds a critical paragraph. The paragraph says, nothing in this resolution shall prejudice the rights of peoples to struggle for self-determination against racist and colonialist regimes and foreign occupation. Now, there's, there's three countries in the world that are opposed to that. The United States, Israel, and South Africa, which doesn't vote. Uh, so, and that's the qualification. The qualification that we demand, including the American doves, uh, is that Arafat join us off the spectrum of world opinion. Join us in South Africa off the spectrum of world opinion by renouncing the right of people to struggle for self-determination against racist and colonialist regimes and foreign occupation. Nobody in the world agrees with this, except South Africa. But that's our position, and therefore that's the right position, because whatever the United States does is by definition right. You don't have to argue it. In fact, you don't even have to report it. If the rest of the world doesn't agree with us, the rest of the world doesn't exist. These facts have never even been reported. It's like a kind of a stubborn three-year-old. You know, I don't like it, so it doesn't exist. Uh, the difference is that in this case, the three-year-old happens to be the world's leading superpower and its media and intellectual community. And if they say the world doesn't exist, it doesn't because they run the show. Uh, so that's, that's the qualification. And uh, in uh, the press conference, the same qualification was added. The uh, PLO made it clear in accompanying statements that they were not abandoning the right to struggle for self-determination against military occupation.
Okay? So everything was as before, except that we now claim that the PLO had accepted our terms, and that's crucial because we have imposed that illusion as the reality, as the operative reality, even though it's not the actual reality. Uh, and therefore, if the PLO uh, denies the legitimacy of, any, of, all of, its pa of the di past dispossession of the Palestinians, or if it claims the right of self-determination, or if it claims the right to resist Israeli soldiers when they break into a liberated village, they're backing off on their solemn promises in the world of illusion, of operative illusion that we've created, and therefore we're le legitimate to punish them. Well, why did the United States make that move? Because it was becoming impossible not to. It was impossible to overlook the fact that the uprising was not being suppressed by force, that the world was pressing for a diplomatic settlement. It was necessary to introduce a delaying action. This is the way it was done. Standard great power politics. And you can get away with it if you're a superpower with an extremely servile intellectual community. That's critical. They have to repeat all of this and not, uh, and not uh, expose it. And if you now, uh, now I, I've said what I think, now what I urge you to do is go back and look at the documentary record. It won't take very long, it's all quite transparent. Uh, things like this have happened many times in the past. If you want to look at the actual documentation, it's given in this current article of mine in Z Magazine, which I mentioned, but it's pretty transparent. All you have to do is look back at the statements and you'll see that that's the way it works, I think. And I really urge you to do it, it's important. All right, where do we stand now? Well, where we stand now is that I think there's good reason to suppose that the Defense Minister of Israel is giving the right interpretation, the one that I started with. That there is a delaying action, the United States tried to keep its diplomatic o options open. Uh, Israel will now do exactly what the Defense Minister says, uh, they will try to crush the uprising by force. They figure they got another year to do it. And if they don't, if they can't crush it by force, then the United States will reassess exactly as it did in the case of Egypt and exactly as it did in the case of Lebanon. If violence doesn't work, you got to reassess. You got to adapt somehow. If they do crush it by force, we go back to the status quo. Now that's what's going to happen if there's no domestic reaction within the United States. If the American population lets this happen, that's exactly what's going to happen. But whether it happens or not is very much in our hands. We're not. The media may be uh, slaves of the state, but there's no reason for everybody else to be. been watching the United States, Israel, and the Palestinians, a PDX Justice from the Archives lecture, delivered March 15, 1989. In a moment, we will turn to the beginning of the question and answer session from this presentation. Our speaker has been Noam Chomsky, Professor of Linguistics and Philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Among his many publications, he is author of Middle East Illusions, which includes his early work, Peace in the Middle East, Reflections on Justice and Nationhood, The Fateful Triangle, The United States, Israel, and the Palestinians, and 9-11, a collection of interviews published in the aftermath of the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And now we return to the question and answer session from Professor Noam Chomsky's presentation, the United States, Israel, and the Palestinians.
Uh, it seems to me that you have uh, presented a rather facile proposition that a political solution would be easily arrived at, and you mentioned what that solution was, except for bad fascist people in Washington. And uh, I would like to see you discuss the proposition that even with benign people in Washington, even there then. is neither a military nor a political solution to the Israeli PLO conflict. And uh, the reason is demographic. And my particular angle is global bioethics. And that is that Israel is a secular government that permits controlled fertility and the Islamic world, including PLO, does not. <laughs> That's a very familiar uh, argument for those of you who study Southern Africa, but I won't go into the analogies. Uh, the, uh, I didn't say anything about bad fascist people in Washington. I talked about two positions in Washington, which existed in 1969 and still exist today. Uh, you take a look at, you go to the State Department, you talk to the ambassadors, uh, the Foreign Service, you go to the oil companies, which are very influential in U.S. Middle Eastern policy, they have basically been pressing for a political settlement all along, and they've lost out in the internal conflict. There are all kinds of reasons for that. They're worth going into, but that's the way it still is today. Now, uh, as to the question of fertility, I don't see what that has to do with the political settlement, to tell you the truth. Uh, th in fact, there are two major groups in that, if you're interested in the facts, though I don't, let me state in advance that this has nothing to do with the issue. Uh, uh, you don't make political settlements unless you're a racist on the basis of checking birth rates. Uh, but there are two major groups in the former Palestine that have uh, that area, you know, that have very high birth rates. One is the Palestinians and the other is the religious Jews. Uh, the religious Jews have a very high birth rate, in fact, uh, higher than the Palestinians. Uh, and they're becoming for demographic reasons, a major element. This means the fundamentalists, you know, extreme fundamentalists, uh, are a major element. Their power was shown in the last elections, and it will increase for demographic reasons. So if one were to accept your arguments, we should oppose the state of Israel. But I don't accept the arguments on, at least I, those who do not want uh, uh, a, an extremist fundamentalist regime, which is a kind of Jewish version of Khomeini, uh, should oppose the state of Israel on your grounds, and I don't accept those grounds. I mean, the relative birth rates and so on are problems for peoples to work out, not for us to work out as a political settlement. On the other hand, your first statement I agree with. Uh, you said it was facile to say that you could just have a two-state political settlement. That's true, and it's worth discussing. I mean, I didn't go into that. I just said that there is an international consensus, and the United States and Israel have blocked it. But bear in mind that there's a question as to whether that consensus is feasible. That's another topic, and I'll be glad to talk about it, but let me wait until it comes up in a question. Anyhow, that point, I think, is a plausible point. It's not easy. There are lots of problems that come up, and they're not the ones that are usually discussed, and they're not the problem of birth rate. Uh, okay, we'll go, now we'll go there, there, and there. Yeah, how do you assess the relative importance of the opposition to current policies um, in the United States and in Israel, and what are some examples of organizations in Israel and organizations in the United States that are starting to question the current and past policies of Israel and the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Well, part of the problem—I mean, that's an interesting question. Uh, if, if here we let's let's let me define a word 
first, and so we'll have a way of talking. The word rejectionist, okay? By a re there, there's two national groups that claim the right of national self-determination in the former Palestine. That's just a fact, however you assess these claims. It's a fact that there are two national groups. One is the indigenous population, Palestinians. The other is the Jewish immigrants who established the state of Israel. They both claim the right of national self-determination. That's a fact. Uh, let's now define the term rejectionist to mean somebody who rejects one or the other of those claims. Okay, that's what I'm going to mean by a rejectionist. Now, let me stress that that's different than the usage. That's the usage in the world, but it's not the usage in the United States. Remember, in the United States, there's a convention. What the U.S. government does is right. That's the convention. Now, the United States government rejects one of those national claims, but the United States government can't be rejectionist. The reason is rejectionist has a bad connotation to it. It makes you think of a, like a stubborn three-year-old or something. So therefore, the good guys can't be rejectionists. So you've got to reinterpret the word rejectionism so it refers only to those who deny the rights of Jews. Those are the rejectionists. So Khomeini's a rejectionist and Gaddafi's a rejectionist, but Washington is not rejectionist. Now, note that the conventional usage is, again, strictly racist. It says that there's a fundamental difference. The Palestinians don't have the rights that Jews have. Okay, maybe somebody can give an argument for that. But anyway, as it's used, it's racist. I want to use the term in a non-racist sense. There are two rights. The person who rejects one or the other is a rejectionist. Maybe they have arguments for it. I'm not going into the assessment of the claims, but that's what I'm going to mean by rejectionist. Now, re coming back to your question, uh, I'm going to interpret it, I hope this is right, uh, as meaning what uh, non-rejectionist groups are there in Israel and the United States? That's right. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, well, in the United States, basically none. No, or, I mean, first, let, well, let me put it this way. Among U.S. elites, there is a non-rejectionist group. For example, the oil companies have been non-rejectionist. They've been calling for a political settlement. They've been doing it since the early 70s. Uh, uh, very conservative elements in the United States. There's nothing to do with left or right or anything like that. Very conservative elements have been non-rejectionist. So if you read a journal like, say, American Arab Affairs, it's non-rejectionist and it's uh, printed on very glossy paper and looks very fancy, so I suppose it has plenty of business money behind it. And judging by the people who write for it, that's what it looks like but it's non-rejectionist. It happens to take a position of a substantial part of the American business community, which believes that the best way for the United States to maintain control of the oil and everything else in the Middle East is to damp this, dampen this t conflict and eliminate it. It's an irritant, get rid of it, and then we take over. That's tactical judgment. Uh, uh, on the other hand, the dominant position has been rejectionist. Now, what about the general population? Well, part of the problem in the United States, I think, has been that since the 1967 war, the articulate part of the population, the educated, articulate part of the population, has not only been rejectionist, but has, almost, has been fanatically rejectionist. In fact, anybody who publicly came out with a support for a political settlement or with talk about the rights of the Palestinians or with criticism of the occupation uh, was denounced as... Uh, you know, a Nazi or a monster or a gangster or a left fascist or, you know, a whole bunch of things. I mean, it became literally impossible to discuss the issue. Uh, just out of straight intimidation, politicians were afraid to open their mouths. Uh, uh, people in the media were unable to talk about it. Individuals who did it were subjected to the, to the kind of venom that only the educated classes know how to produce. That's part of their occupation. Uh, and it became very ugly. As a result, there's been virtually no debate. And I think that's one of the reasons that's one of the things that swung policy towards 
the rejectionist position. It's been basically non-debated. Try to find somebody in the media who is, a, or you know, in the general spectrum who's come out for a non-rejectionist position. It's extremely difficult. There are few, you know, you find one or a few scattered around, but very few. Uh, and the reason has been primarily intimidation. Uh, uh, the, uh, and again, I stress it's not a left-right issue by any means. Uh, as far as the general population is concerned, according to polls, about two-thirds of the population has been non-rejectionist. That is, if people are asked in a poll what's the right answer, about, by about two to one, they've generally tended to say, yeah, there should be a Palestinian state. But the general population is irrelevant. They don't participate in the political system. They just push buttons every once in a while. Uh, and the, uh, the politically active part of the population, basically the educated, articulate part, they have been extremely rejectionist. Uh, that's, it's true of many segments, the Jewish community, the labor bureaucracy, the, uh, uh, the uh, so-called neoconservatives, I mean, the, uh, you know, the active, organized liberals, uh, the Christian fundamentalists, very, it happens to you, many of them are very anti-Semitic, but they're also very pro-Israel. Those two things go along quite easily. Uh, Eichmann was a Zionist, for example. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it's been a very broad spectrum. So in the United States, unfortunately, there's been very little, it's been very little public organized articulate support for a political settlement, which is one reason why these things have happened. Now, what about in Israel? Well, you know, there it's a complicated story, and we have many illusions about it. Uh, according to the standard version, you know, which you read in the New York Times and so on, there's peace forces in Israel, but unfortunately there are no counterparts among the Arabs. Uh, unfortunately, it's the opposite that's the case. The PLO has been non-rejectionist since the mid-70s, sometimes ambiguously, you know, sometimes quite clearly. Now, that's not to say the PLO is a great organization. I don't think it is. I think you can accuse them of all sorts of things. You can accuse them of corruption, incompetence, terror, you know, it's all legitimate, in fact. But that doesn't change the fact that their position has been basically non-rejectionist since their endorsement and maybe preparation of the January 76 proposal. There has been no articulate group in Israel, except for the way out at the margins, that has, been, has taken the same position. Now, people refer to peace now. But the point is that peace now, though it's a pretty big movement, is, is rejectionist. Peace now has yet to come out with a proposal in favor of a two-state political settlement. As late as the end, as the U.S.-Israeli rejectionism is so extreme that it refuses to allow the Palestinians even to accept to, to uh, select their own representatives for eventual negotiations. That's really an extreme form of rejectionism. That's what it means to say that the, the PLO can't participate in negotiations. Just to think how extreme this is, make up an analogy for yourselves, a valid analogy. Let's go back to 1947. And suppose that somebody had said that the Zionist organization can't participate in negotiations. Maybe some Jews can, but not the Zionist organization in negotiations, the kind that led ultimately to the establishment of the State of Israel. If somebody had said that, we would have denounced them as Nazis. And the principle is valid, and the same principle holds today. Same principle holds, at least if you're not a racist. To refuse to allow the Palestinians even to select their own representatives, that's really extreme rejectionism. Now, that analogy isn't perfect, like no historical analogy is perfect. But the differences, uh, there are differences. The most striking difference is that support for the PLO among the Palestinians is considerably higher than support for the Zionist organizations among the Jews in 1947. That's the st most striking difference. Uh, other differences that are claimed are mostly not real. Uh, 
Now, until last November, Peace Now was an extreme rejectionist organization. Not only did it refuse to accept a, did it refuse to articulate a political settlement, it refused even to agree uh, that the Palestinian, the PLO could participate in negotiations. In late November, Peace Now for the first time said that Israel should negotiate with the PLO. That means the Palestinians can pick their own representatives. Now that means they sort of, you know, they, they abandoned the most extreme rejectionism. As of today, they don't go any further than that. Now, within the Israeli mainstream, as the Intifada has increased and as Israel's been unable to repress it, segments have moved and have recognized that this isn't going to work and that you've got to have a political settlement. So, for example, the same person I mentioned before, Yehoshaphat Harkabi, the former uh, chief of military intelligence, who was a super hawk, uh, has shifted positions on tactical grounds. He now says it's crazy. Uh, we've got to grant self-determination and independence in a separate state. And there's other shifts. A good deal of the military command apparently is in favor of this. And the reason is that uh, they can see what's happening. When you train your army to break the bones of children, they're not going to be able to fight a war. Uh, in fact, there's uh, in the Jerusalem Post a couple of weeks ago, there's an article by uh, one of the leading, uh, it's in English, so you can read it, by one of the leading uh, Israeli military historians, a man named Martin von Krefeld, who teaches at the Hebrew University. And he says exactly that. He says, look, it's a, you know, the, the Israeli military is going to collapse if it continues to be devoted to repressing the Palestinians. He said, if you want a, an analogy, you want to know what's going to happen, take a look at Argentina during the Falklands War. Uh, the Argentine army had been trained and directed to be a terrorist force uh, to terrorize and murder its own population. When you're trained for that and you face a real army, you can't do it. And he said, that's going to happen to Israel too, and Israel can't afford to lose its military edge, because if it does, it's going to be wiped out. Now, that kind of thinking also has led to a willingness to accept the political settlement, and there are other things. But it's pretty hard to find a group in Israel, uh, an identifiable group that has as yet been willing to accept the political settlement. There are undoubtedly individuals by now, and you can begin to find groups, but they have not done it. I mean, there are some, like uh, the uh, Progressive List for Peace and the Communist Party. Those are two who have always accepted uh, a political settlement, but they're pretty marginal. You know, like the few members in the Knesset. Uh, so basically, not much. And you know, I think they could develop. I think they could. I think they could become significant. In fact, if the United States supported them. Remember, Israel is so dependent on the United States that it's just an incredible level of dependence. There's nothing else like it in the modern world. Uh, that unless some group in Israel gets political support here, it's not going to be credible in Israel. That means as long as the United States doesn't have an articulate, significant group pressing for a non-rejectionist political settlement, as long as that doesn't happen, it's very unlikely that such a group can develop with any credibility within Israel, simply because of the relations of dependencies. The real doves will tell you that, and I think they're right. But at the moment, not much. Uh, Could you connect up um, where are? the United Nations? What? Could you connect up to the United Nations uh, other um, resolution which condemned Zionism as racism with a little bit of the history about what you just said about Eichmann being a Zionist because Zionism includes within itself a double dose of anti-Semitism from the beginning. It was both anti-Jewish in some ways mm -hmm. and of course anti-Arab. Well, uh, there are two separate questions. First, the UN resolution on racism. Uh, 
the, I, I mean, my view that, um, first of all, it was a totally cynical and hypocritical resolution. Whatever you think about the accuracy of it, the states that voted for it are, for the most part, much more racist than Israel is. Uh, so uh, to begin with, the thing, whatever you think about the, the statement of fact, uh, it's just pure hypocrisy. And on those grounds alone should be dismissed as uh, you know, contemptible. Uh, if you put that aside and look at the facts, it's also wrong, I think. Here we get into questions of fact, and on questions of fact, people have disagreements. But in my view, at least, Zionism is not in itself racist. Now, if, on the other I mean, if you look at the policies of the state of Israel, they are racist. But in fact, so are the policies of most states in the world. So there's a narrow point. Well, the policies of the state of Israel, like most states, are racist. Uh, and in fact, we should be, they should be concerned about that, and so should we, since we support them. I'll give you examples if you like. But most states in the world are more racist, including the ones that voted for the resolution. Uh, and the idea that that's somehow inherent in Zionism, I don't think that's correct. I mean, I could explain why if you like, but I don't think it's correct. Uh, the, uh, uh, as for Eichmann, uh, well, here we have to go back to what was going on in the 1930s. We're now talking about the pre-Holocaust period. Now, there's a lot of debates among historians about exactly when the Germans decided to institute the final solution. But it looks as though it was around 1940 or 41, roughly around then. There's a new book by Arno Mayer, a historian at Princeton, who claims that it was actually after the Battle of Stalingrad. Anyhow, it was right around then. Uh, there's no doubt that in the 1930s, the Nazis had not yet decided, maybe they were thinking about it, but they had not decided on the final solution. They're not going to wipe them all out. What they wanted to do was just get rid of the Jews. The Jews are a cancer eating at the heart of Germany and you know, all this business, uh, and you've got to get rid of them. But they were perfectly happy to get rid of them in Palestine. In that sense, Eichmann was a Zionist. Uh, he just said, yeah, we want to get rid of the Jews. If they can go to Madagascar, that's fine. If they can go to Palestine, that's fine. Uh, so we're Zionists. And he studied Hebrew. He even went to, he tried to go to Palestine in 1939. He was invited by the, uh, I think it was by the Israeli Labor Party or some representatives of it, uh, to visit Palestine to talk about this arrangement. The British wouldn't let him in. I think they finally met in Egypt. Uh, now, what about the Jewish side? Well, you know, on the Zionist side, they kind of agreed with that. Zionist ideology is based on rejection of the Enlightenment. You know, the, it's based on, it's, a, it's part of the romantic, if you trace it back, it's part of the romantic reaction to the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment had this idea that, uh, you know, uh, in what they called in the sexist language of the day, uh, the brotherhood of mankind, okay? That was the idea. And there was a romantic opposition to that. It grew up, began in Germany, in fact, in the 18th century. It had all to do with the French Revolution and all sorts of things. And the idea was there's got to be purity of blood and race. Uh, and there's an organic connection between people and their land. And none of this business about equality and fraternity and, you know, uh, uh, secularism and all that kind of business. I mean, roughly that was going on. And, and Zionism grew up in large part out of this romantic uh, opposition to uh, Enlightenment values. The Zionism was sort of, I mean, Zionism, you know, it's a broad movement. But the mainstream of it was based on the conception that... Uh, the Jews can't have a natural life in the diaspora because they just don't belong there. Uh, they, there's an organic connection between the Jews and their land, even if they don't happen to be there at the moment. And the Jews will be able to be restored to a healthy existence if they're back on their land. Now, if you look back at the Zionist literature, even the humanist Zionist literature, you'll discover that they had ambivalent attitudes towards Nazism. On the one hand, they, of course, rejected its anti-Semitism. 
On the other hand, they supported its insistence on purity of race and blood and uh, organic connection between a people and its land and all of this anti-enlightenment business. Uh, that runs right through the 1930s, uh, uh, including you know, well-known spokesmen of humanist Zionism uh, came to the United States and became you know, liberal leaders of the American Jewish community. Uh, and, and you can understand it. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, it, there is a kind of, a lot of, a lot of modern nationalisms are like that. You know, modern nationalism is a very tricky business. Uh, people who think of it as a progressive force are kidding themselves. It's not very often. Uh, and uh, uh, this is one example. I mean, this, these are part of the complexities of the world. And in fact, you know, there was a sense in which the Nazis and the Zionists agreed. There was a sense in which they agreed, namely the Jews should go back and be resettled in their natural place. Okay. That by, the, by 1940 or 41, it was a different story. Then the Nazi policy was just to wipe them all out. Okay, but there was a transition there. So that's the the background is complex, quite complex. Actually, it's even more complex if you look in detail. The current Prime Minister of Israel, Yitzhak Shamir, was at that time head of a terrorist group, the Lehi, the so-called Stern Gang, which actually sent a representative to the Nazis, tried to send a representative to the Nazis in 1941, offering to make a, uh, a an alliance with them in which if they supported the, state, uh, the you know, Jewish state in Palestine, they would be the Middle Eastern representatives of them because they, not just on tactical grounds, but because they supported the totalitarian uh, ideals of the Nazis and they would represent them in the Middle East. Uh, that's been a sort of a dirty little secret that people have known for a long time but have refused to talk about. Uh, though you can read about it in the Hebrew literature and so on, but it actually leaked out into the Jerusalem Post a couple of uh, weeks ago for the first time in English, I think. But that's been known for years. Uh, and, you know, the world is complicated when you, when you look at it in detail. Uh, okay. This concludes part two of the lecture program, The United States, Israel, and the Palestinians. In the final segment, part three, we will conclude the question and answer session from the presentation and hear commentary from members of the Jewish and Palestinian communities involved in the struggle for peace and for justice in this troubled land. Part one of this lecture is available as streaming video through our website at www.pdxjustice.org. The lecture was delivered on March 15, 1989 at the Union Theater on the University of Wisconsin campus in Madison, Wisconsin. For more information about this and other PDX Justice programs, please visit our website at www.pdxjustice.org. You'll find broadcast dates for this and other programs and links to additional resources for learning more about the conflict in Israel and Palestine. This program has been produced by PDX Justice Media Productions. Thank you for tuning in, and thank you for supporting public access cable television, net neutrality, and all forms of grassroots, democratic, community media.